WCCS podcast with Bible teaching from Pastor Al Pittman. Today, we've got a message titled Spirit of Grace from Acts chapter 15. Pastor Al believes that the church should be a grace place, and he'll show us four attributes of the Spirit of Grace that are found in today's scripture. But before we get there, Pastor Al has written a new book that answers many questions people have at this time. It's titled Revelation, Earth's Final Chapter. The last book of the Bible is sometimes the least read and often the most misunderstood. That's why Al Pittman has written a book from his teachings through Revelation. For those who read, those who hear, and those who keep the words of this prophecy, there's a blessing for you that you are hearing these words today. Revelation, Earth's Final Chapter by Al Pittman is the new book available for pre-order now. What would Jesus say about your church? What is unveiled in the book of Revelation? Why is the church missing for so many chapters? The church age has ended. The church age is an age of grace. Grace has ended. Now judgment has come. Review the book of Revelation chapter by chapter with Al Pittman in his new book. Pre-order now where you get books or go to cwccs.org. That's cwccs.org. Someone once said, you know, I wish God would speak to us as he did in days of old and all this, but God is speaking. But are we listening? Revelation. Earth's Final Chapter by Al Pittman. This new book by Pastor Al Pittman comes from his in-depth teaching series on the book of Revelation. A perfect read for such a time as this. Revelation, Earth's Final Chapter. Pre-order or go to cwccs.org. Now here's today's message, Spirit of Grace. We're in Acts chapter 15. We have been studying through the book of Acts. And in chapter 15, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 18. This morning, I've entitled this message, Spirit of Grace. I'm going to talk about the spirit of grace versus the spirit of legalism. The church should be a grace place. Amen? Everybody's not convinced this morning, but it's all right. The church should be a grace place. And that does not mean that it's without order. The Bible says everything should be done decently and in order. And it doesn't mean that we should, there should not be any reverence. But it should be a place, the church, where grace is offered to bind up and heal every wound. During the Civil War, a man by the name of James Hill Augie, he was a minister of the gospel, was in prison and condemned to execution by the Confederate South for his outspoken anti-secession and pro-union beliefs. Uh, He wasn't killed. They wanted to execute him, but God didn't allow them to do that. But he said this, I thought was interesting, about the church, an accurate description of the church. He said, and I quote, The church is not a select circle of the immaculate, but a home where the outcast may come in. It is not a place with gate attendants and challenging sentinels along the entranceways, holding off at arm's length the stranger, but rather a hospital where the brokenhearted may be healed and where all the weary and troubled may find rest and take counsel together. Close quote. Amen. Amen. The church, therefore, I believe, especially in the times in which we live, is essential. Has an essential place within our society. I rejoice to hear on Friday about the historic decision by a California court to protect the right 
of Pastor John MacArthur and Grace Community Church to hold indoor worship services. Amen. I rejoice in that because if, the, if our country ever needed the church, it is now. People desperately need a grace place today. So what does it have to do with our text? Well, in our text, we find a group of believers within the church trying to change all that by pulling the church back into legalism. And so it is my prayer today that we will leave this place with a greater understanding of God's grace, that we, the church, might be a beacon of hope and healing to our nation and to the world. We may have a true sense of the spirit of grace within our own, our own lives. So we began here in verse, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. We're going to take it a section at a time in an expository fashion, if you will. And, and uh, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2. Will you read along with me to begin our study? And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should uh, go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Paul and Barnabas, as you remember from last time, had returned to Antioch of Syria to uh, report on the great things that God had done among the Gentiles. And while there, of course, these men come down, uh, uh, come, uh, down from Jerusalem uh, and say, hey, unless you're circumcised, you're not really saved. Uh, these men were called and called in Scripture Judaizers. Uh, Judaizers, what are they? Well, they are Jewish converts to Christianity. These are believers who believe that one must keep the law of Moses and its customs in order to be saved, as they just exclaimed themselves. Circumcision was one of those customs in the law of Moses. It served as a sign, and still is today in Orthodox, uh, with, among Orthodox Jews and all, uh, a sign of God's covenant relationship with his people. And so they thought it was so important, that this is important for them to keep this custom from the law of Moses. But Paul and Barnabas had, the Bible says, no small dissension and dispute with this teaching. And we should neither. There are two primary reasons that we're going to look at here uh, why they had no small dissension or dispute about this teaching. Because number one, it was, well, for one thing, it was heretical. Uh, and there are some who even teach today in the church that uh, unless you are baptized with water, you cannot really be saved. Because the Bible says, believe on Jesus Christ and be baptized. And then, of course, we're reminded of the thief on the cross uh, who said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. And there was no water for him to be baptized in. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And then there are some who even say, and I've been around a long time, probably too long, amen. <laughs> Seen a lot of these uh, the teachings, false teachings come through the church. You know, unless you speak in tongues, because tongues is the only evidence of being filled with the Holy Spirit. Unless you speak in tongues, you're not saved. I've heard that talk. And then there are those some groups who say, well, you're not saved if you don't belong to our group. 
Unless you belong to this particular church or movement, you're not really saved. One of the such cults, if you will, is, and I'm not here to defend anybody, but I'm going to tell you the truth, is Jehovah Witnesses. They say, if you don't belong to, you know, the Watchtower organization, the 144,000, then you can't get into heaven, you know. Uh, of course, over time, their membership grew uh, beyond 144,000, so they had to change their theology. And now, you know, of course, they don't tell you because they talk about the 144,000 mentioned in the book of Revelation. But what they fail to tell you is that the 144,000 are all Jews. 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. She kind of left that little point out. But my point is, is that there are those who teach heretical teachings that, you know, that you have to believe a certain way or do these other things in addition to uh, believing in Jesus Christ. Now, uh, Paul and Barnabas, again, had no small dissension and dispute about this teaching, primarily for two reasons. Number one is that legalism minimizes the work of the cross. It takes away from the work of the cross. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, to Gal- the Galatians in the book of Galatians, he, he dealt extensively with this issue. What issue? The issue of works versus grace, the spirit of grace. And there he reminded the church, he reminds us today, that by relying on our flesh rather than faith in Christ, we have an essence, he says in Galatians 5, 4, you have become estranged from Christ. You have attempt, you who attempt rather, to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. A better translation of that Greek phrase, fallen from grace, can be found in the old King Jimmy version, old King James. And there it reads, rather than saying falling from grace, there it says, Christ is become of no effect unto you. I love that. So true. If you began to trust in your own works rather than what Jesus Christ has done for you, the work of the cross. In other words, he's saying there, it's not that you've lost your salvation. But you have fallen from the method of salvation, which is grace. And so therefore, your relationship with God now is based upon legalism rather than grace. And you traded in your liberty in Christ for condemnation. Because that's exactly, I don't know anyone that I've ever met that was a legalistic person that wasn't living under some cloud of condemnation. Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he says, for the letter kills, that is the law. Trying to keep a set of rules and regulations, the letter kills, but the spirit, the spirit, what spirit? The spirit of grace gives life. Legalism, keeping the law, is what I mean by that when I say legalism, keeping the law. And it could be the laws of a denomination, the rules of a denomination or whatever, but keeping the law implies that the work of the cross is incomplete. That's heretical. And at worst, blasphemous. The work of the cross is incomplete. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. (laughs) Amen. So Jesus was lying from the cross? Or did Jesus know what he was talking about? It is finished. Your atonement is full and complete. Amen? Amen. Through what he did, not what we can do. Thus in Christ, here's something we need to remember. Very simple, but a profound truth. 
There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. Oh, God really loves me this morning. I'm here at the 10 o'clock service. Woo! I turned off the television and turned on the, you know, the uh, live stream. And oh, God, I'm sure he's happy with me this morning. Well, he's happy. But he doesn't love you anymore because you showed up at church. There's nothing we can do to make God love us any more or any less. Somebody said, God loves you. Get over it. <laughs> Amen? Amen? His love is not like the love of the world. People love you some days, some days they don't. God's love is everlasting. It's consistent. It never changes. Amen. That's the spirit of grace. That's what grace does for us. It exposes us to his unchanging love. The second reason that Paul and Barnabas disputed this false teaching was because legalism is merely another form of pride. <laughs> People are proud that they please the Lord. <laughs> or they think they're pleasing the Lord. Legalism is just another form of pride. The Hebrew people took great pride in circumcision. In fact, it became a badge, if you will, for Hebrew males, for Jewish males, a badge of their spiritual and national superiority. And so therefore they would look down at other people, despise the Gentiles, those uncircumcised Gentiles who were not in covenant with God. Pride, when you think about it, however, is a deterrent to true intimacy with God. When we're looking to ourselves through our narcissistic spirit, how can we ever give God the glory? Because we think it's all us. Pride interferes with our intimacy with God. Why do I say that? Well, James tells us God resists the proud, but he gives what? Spirit of grace to the humble. The Pharisees were proud of their system, proud of their circumcision and their religious order. In fact, the Pharisees had developed a system of 613 laws from the Ten Commandments. <laughs> they added on a little bit. 613 laws, 365 negative commandments, and 248 positive laws. And by the time Jesus Christ came on the scene, it had produced a heartless, cold, arrogant brand of righteousness, which Jesus hated. And rebuked. He illustrated that in his parable of the two men who went up to the temple in Matthew chapter 18. One was a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Tax collectors were hated in the Jewish culture in the time of Christ. Because tax collectors were commissioned by the Roman government to, to extract taxes from the Jewish people. They would choose a Jewish individual and he was taking money from his own people. And they hated that tax collectors for that. And this despised, rejected individual went up to the temple along with the Pharisees. They didn't know each other, but they were, Jesus said they both went up to the temple that one day. And the Pharisees stood, you know, they're bragging and boasting about how he tithed and how self-righteous he was and all the stuff he didn't do. He didn't drink, smoke, or chew or go with girls who do and all that. He was just boasting about, amen, that's an old phrase from the Baptist church. 
But he was boasting about how righteous he was and all that. And then the, the tax collector, despised by the people, over in the corner maybe, beating his chest. Saying, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said, that man went down from the temple that day justified. Amen. Amen. Because he humbled himself before God. He relied upon God's mercy and grace rather than relying upon his self-righteousness. The Lord hates that spirit. You know, <laughs> the Lord rebuked the spirit of legalistic conformity. Conformity says, you know, we've got to press you into this mold and make you just like us. Religion does that. But not a relationship with God. God has not called us to religion, but a relationship of intimacy with God. And Jesus rebuked that, that legalistic conformity. I call it the cancel culture of his day. The religious cancel culture of his day. L look at what the Lord said. Now, some people, I'm going to read this in a moment, but some people, you know, if Jesus was a pastor today, a lot of people wouldn't go to his church. He just said some things straight out, man. He, he offended people. He didn't care. And look at, look at what he said to the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. We'll see you next week. <laughs> Let's take an offering. <laughs> I love the Lord's power and directness he spoke as one with authority and people wouldn't like that today he calls them hypocrites he didn't try to find common ground he called it because they were trusting in their own self-righteousness being a stumbling block for people who really wanted to come to truth and tell them oh you can't get there from here because you have to keep all these rules and regulations So Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with these folks. They were irate. They were like, you know, and I want you to understand that they weren't just like that. Hey, guys, can we kind of find some common ground? I mean, they really came after him and said, wait a minute, this is wrong. You're minimizing the cross, the work of the cross. And you're walking in pride in your own egos. You know, ego, E-G-O, edging God out. <laughs> Amen. I'm glad you remember that. Amen. No, really, edging God out. That's what our pride does. And he rebuked him for that. In verses 3 to 18, we find four attributes now of the spirit of grace that I want to share with you this morning. And those attributes are joy, fruitfulness, purity, and confirmation by the spirit of grace. In verses 3 and 4, we find the spirit of grace produces joy. Read along with me, verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. And these are brethren that the church started in Jerusalem. It spread from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so there are Christians in this region, Phoenicia and Samaria, and as Paul and Barnabas were going through, they were sharing, let me tell you what God did. This was good news to these people. A lot of them, most of them, if not all of them, near, nearly, uh, most of them, I should say, were probably Gentiles. And they were rejoicing. 
And the Bible says in verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. I love that God had done, not they had done, but God had done with them. So the first attribute of the spirit of grace is the spirit of grace produces fruit. The gospel of grace, wherever it's proclaimed, it produces joy. The inhabitants of Phoenicia, Phoenicia and Samaria needed some good news. <laughs> because the church, of the, you know, in the early days of the first century church, most of the believers were Jewish. And now the gospel is now going out to the Gentiles. This is good news for them. Phoenicia, where's Phoenicia? Phoenicia today is modern day Lebanon. And Lebanon could use some good news today. If you've been watching the news. And in this region, the Phoenician, they worship the Phoenician god Yam. Not Yam, but Yam. And he was a god of the sea. The god of the sea who symbolized the violent and uncompromising nature. That it, the side of nature, rather. A violent god. He was, in mythology, the brother of Molt. Molt is the god of death. So here you have Phoenicia, you know, worshiping this God who is a God of violence, a God of the sea, and also, you know, who is related to the God of death. And then, of course, they go through Samaria. Samaria, of course, is ancient Samaria. It's in modern-day Israel today. Uh, ancient Samaria is in the region uh, now known as the West Bank. And so they travel from, through Lebanon down through the West Bank to Jerusalem, and the West Bank is about 29 kilometers, um, around 30 miles uh, northeast of Jerusalem. And so they traveled down through this region. And I think this is significant because the, the region, this region, was inhabited by uh, Samaria itself, was inhabited by uh, 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 many ethnicities and, and, and by those that were considered to be uh, half-Jews. And some of you may know the biblical history on it, but uh, uh, Samaria, northern Israel, Samaria was the capital of northern Israel, was conquered by the Assyrians, uh, you know, centuries before. And what the Assyrians would do is that they take all the prominent people out, educated people out of the culture, and they would leave all the poor folks, and then they would bring another population from a country they have conquered and implant them in that region so it would lessen the opportunity or, uh, uh, for them to have any kind of uprising because they couldn't speak the same language or had the same culture. And so, you know, it would, it would uh, keep people from rising up against the Assyrians. They would do that. That was one of their practices. And so when they brought this other culture in, these other people in from another place, when they conquered Samaria, the people would uh, uh, intermingle, intermarry, and all of this. And so Years later, fast forward centuries later, you know, in Jesus' day, many of the religious Jews considered the Jews in Samaria to be half-Jews because they had mixed with other races, other ethnicities. But you also had other ethnicities living there as well. So here you have the paint you the picture. You have a situation where there's uh, uh, other ethnicities there in Samaria, people that were despised by those who were full-blooded Jews. And you remember the story in John chapter 4 where Jesus spoke to who? The woman at the well. What was she? A Samaritan woman. And the disciples were shocked <laughs> that he was speaking to a woman and <gasps> a Samaritan woman at that. 
They hated Samaria so much that the religious Jews, Orthodox Jews, wouldn't even travel through Samaria. They'd go around it. That's how much they despised the land because it had been compromised in their mind. And thus we could say in these two regions that uh, Paul and Barnabas traveled through with these, this entourage, if you will, going down to Jerusalem. Um, these two regions, we have a people living under a spirit of violence and death. A multitude, mixed ethnicities, who desperately needed to hear the good news of the gospel. And so the people, when they heard it, they rejoiced. I was thinking about that as I was studying this. I thought, Lord, it's much like today. We have a culture of violence. We have a culture of death. We have a culture of violence in our cities, the violence that is going on and, and, and the crime wave that is happening in, in our cities today. We have a, a, a culture of death. You can't escape hearing every day about the pandemic and COVID-19 and, and all these different things. And it's just per- perpetuating a, a spirit, an atmosphere of death. I mean, look at us. Look around. Your neighbors won't even talk to you. When you go to the store, you know, you feel kind of paranoid. You don't want to touch anybody, you know. A friend of mine was sharing the other day that, or actually after the last service the other day, after the last service he told me, he said, you know what, he said he was out bike riding with his wife and they're coming downhill, doing about 20 miles an hour, people were coming the other way, and the people got off their bikes and put on their masks and turned their backs to them. <laughs> people are paranoid. <laughs> he said it kind of reminded him of the Ozzy Osbourne song, Paranoia Will Destroy You. I've never heard the song, but he said it was Ozzy Osbourne song. <laughs> All you Ozzy Osbourne fans out there might know it. And truly, we're, we're captivated by paranoia. Do you sense it? Am I right about it? We're so afraid. We're walking in fear. And so, it, as it is, was back then, the, 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 there was a God of death, a, a culture of violence among the people. But the remedy today is the same as it was back then. What is the remedy? It's the spirit of grace. Amen. And wherever the grace of the gospel or the gospel of grace was shared, there was what? Great joy among the believers. Great joy among the people. If the world ever needed a church, they need the church today. If the world ever needed a church to stand up, they need us to stand up today. Amen. The spirit of grace produces true joy. I don't know if you've been watching it on television, but Franklin Graham has these commercials on television. I love them. They're not political or anything else, just short and sweet, 30 seconds maybe. And he's just sharing the gospel and inviting people to pray the sinner's prayer and to come to faith in Christ. We live in a time where there's so much chaos going on. People are desperately needing the gospel of grace. And it's the only remedy for our nation and for the world. But you know, wherever there's divine joy, the people have great joy. The Bible says they had great joy because Paul was, and Barnabas were sharing uh, what God was doing by his grace among the Gentiles. But look at verse 5. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up. They believe in Jesus. But they rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. You know, these are people I call joy suckers. <laughs> Amen. There's always that person around. You know, when you have this great joy, here they come around. Yeah, but. They're joy suckers. 
trying to rob them of their joy. Some people think they have the, they've been given a gift by God. It's their job to point out the reason why you should not be joyful. Right now, some of you are sitting there right now in the spirit, there's that spirit of joy suckers, amen, can come into your mind through a thought or, or, or something you commit, something happened 10 years ago, or whatever it is, and, and you walk in with joy and you sit here long enough, if you meditate on the thoughts, it'll suck the joy right out of you. But the Bible says we have great joy, amen, in the Lord. Because of the spirit of grace, the gospel of grace that God has given to us, because the joy of the Lord, amen, is our strength. Hallelujah. So the spirit of grace produces joy, and secondly, the spirit, second attribute is that the spirit of grace produces the fruit of repentance. In verse 6, read along with me, verses 6 to 8, he says, Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been much dispute, there's a possibility of division in the church over this. When there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, I would underline that, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Spirit of grace produces the fruit of repentance, and the fruit of repentance, repentance is salvation. Division was averted because of, of the fruit of repentance, because salvation had come to the Gentiles. Peter here is relating the fact that he had gone to Cornelius' house. Remember the centurion Cornelius in Acts chapter 10? He was summoned from Joppa to come up to Caesarea, and he shared the gospel with Cornelius in his household, a centurion, a Gentile. And while Peter was sharing his message, the Holy Spirit fell on Cornelius and his whole household, and they were all saved. And so basically, what the point he's making here, they were saved apart from keeping the law. They bore the fruit of uh, repentance. The Spirit of grace enables us to bear the fruit of repentance, which is salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. It was irrefutable, irrefutable proof, if you will. Why? Because he said, listen, God gave them the Holy Spirit just as he did with us. The Holy Spirit endorsed their salvation, the salvation of the Gentiles, again, apart from the law. Peter further supports his case by stressing the fact The salvation is of God. Only God knows the heart. Only God knows the heart. uh, Cardiognostes is the Greek word, and it literally means God knows the heart or heart knower. I love that. God knows what's in your heart right now. People say, oh, I know my heart. Yeah, God knows your heart too. Your heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things. In fact, the reality is you don't know your heart. The Bible says, who can know it? That's why David said, Lord, you search my heart. See if there be any wicked way in me. Because I can search my heart according to my laws and according to my rules. I look pretty good. But when you search, let the Holy Spirit search your heart, he can point some things out that you might have missed. <laughs> Not to condemn you, but to heal you. 
Amen. Amen. Only God knows the heart. And, you know, it's a political season. Everybody's out there talking about what's in everybody's heart. Nobody knows what's in the heart, but the heart knower. And that is God. And so the point that Peter's making here is that God knows the heart. He looks on the heart. You look on the outward things, circumcision and the laws you're supposed to keep. All this, God looks upon the heart. I'm so glad he looks upon the heart because Jesus came to heal our hearts. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, Jesus' mission statement when he started his ministry was the spirit of the Lord, he said, is upon me. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. God knows our hearts, and he's the only one who can heal our hearts. Why? Because he know, he's the only one who can know it. He has come to heal the brokenhearted. He doesn't see your ethnicity. He doesn't see your economic status. He doesn't see your background, what you did, and all these different things. All he sees is a heart in need of his touch. Do you need a touch today? You're watching online. Do you need a touch today? You're gathered here today or up in overflow. Do you need God to touch your heart today? He knows your heart. God looks at the heart. Men look on the outward things. In fact, God's grace is naturally attracted to our brokenness. His grace is naturally attracted to our brokenness. David said it this way in Psalm 51. He said, for you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God knows the broken heart. He knows people who are broken. People, people fake like they're broken, but they're not broken. And then there are those who are broken, and God knows it. He's the heart knower. The noted evangelist and author Vance Havner once said this, and I quote, he says, God uses broken things. It takes broken soil to produce a crop, broken clouds to give rain, broken grain to give bread, and broken bread to give strength. It is the broken alabaster box that gives forth perfume. It is Peter weeping bitterly who returns to greater power than ever. Close quote. And if anybody knows about God knowing the heart, it's Peter testifying here. Who had denied the Lord three times, and yet God had restored his heart. Amen. Praise his holy name. Well, we come to our third attribute of the spirit of grace. The spirit of grace purifies the heart as well. Verses 9 to 12, read along with me. He continues his testimony and he says, And God made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace, there it is, of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of grace, rather, purifies the heart. The spirit of grace provides a spirit, is really the spirit of unity. I should say it that way. And why do I say that? Because when we have a deep sense of grace, that the only reason we're here today is because of God's grace, it produces a unity within the body of Christ rather than judgmentalism. Because we understand that we're all here by grace. 
that I don't deserve to be here. You don't deserve to be here, but we are here. Why? Because of Jesus. And that provides and creates a sense of unity within the church. So purification, the spirit of grace is really the spirit of unity. It purifies us and it unites us. God makes no distinction, amen? People make distinctions. The Bible says God makes no distinction. In other words, one believer is not more pure than the other. I know we act that way sometimes, but you're not. One believer is not more pure. Sometimes we think, oh, I'm more pure because I have a great week in the Lord and I've done my devotions for 30 days and, you know, straight and God loves me more than him. (laughs) Now, we don't say it, but that's the way we think sometimes. You know, but the Bible says God makes no distinction. He's not a respecter of persons. Oh, Pastor Al, could you put a prayer in for me with the Lord? Uh, because I know you have an in with God and you're on the, you know, got the inside track, you know. You stand on the platform a couple of feet high, so you must be closer to the Lord. No, there's no distinction. No distinction at all. God hears your prayers. God heals you. God moves powerfully through your life. No distinction. He tells us here, he has purified you. You cannot be more pure. If you're in Christ, you're pure, and that's it. You're as pure as you're ever going to get if you're in Jesus. Now, I love this because because the spirit of grace purifies the heart. But when legalism intersects with brokenness, it punishes. When legalism intersects with with, uh, uh, our weaknesses, our brokenness, or failures, it punishes us. What do I mean by that? It condemns us. Oh, I didn't do that. Oh, gee. Oh, you know. We're condemning ourselves when the Bible tells us there's now no condemnation in Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus. But when grace intersects with brokenness, what happens? It purifies. <laughs> No matter how broken I am or, or how I failed or my weaknesses in my life, if I would come and fall upon, because, you know, he's provided for us an altar, a, a throne, a place where we can come. It's not called the throne of, of uh, performance or the throne of, of, uh, of condemnation, but it's called the throne of what? Grace. To receive grace and help in time of need. And so when grace intersects my brokenness, when I come to the Lord, he doesn't sit there and put me on probation. Some spiritual probation. Well, we'll uh, get back with me in a couple of weeks, Al. We'll check things out, see how you've been doing. God's not a parole officer. When your weakness intersects with his, with his grace, he purifies you. First John 1, 9, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from not some, but all unrighteousness to make you as pure as you'll ever be. Amen. That's the grace of God. He provides purification, not condemnation. And so Peter chastises the brethren, these legalistic brethren, by saying, why do you put this yoke on these guys? He says, why do you test God and put this yoke on them? Because it's not the yoke. The yoke of man is not the yoke of God. Jesus talked about his yoke in Matthew chapter 11. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is what? Easy and my burden is light. 
Here's something that's a great test for your life. If you feel, if life has become burdensome, here's what I know about me. I've ceased to learn about Jesus. And now I'm more focused and obsessed with some unrealistic expectations I've laid upon my life or trying to live up to the unrealistic expectations of other people. And people are glad in their spare time to fashion a yoke for you to wear. Oh, this looks good on you. I can't do all that. Oh, yeah. It's what we believe here at our church. You know. And I know when life becomes burdensome, the ministry becomes burdensome, I have ceased to learn from Jesus, and I'm learning from my performance. And note something here, too, and I already alluded to it, and Peter mentions it here, mentions it here that, that legalism is a form of testing God. Why do you test God in this? In context, testing God is measuring another brother or sister in Christ by the law. I don't know if I want to fellowship with them because they don't do X, Y, Z. Judging another brother or sister by the law. And basically, when you judge them by the law, you're basically saying, God has not done a good enough job by the blood of Jesus. They also need to meet these requirements that I think they ought to meet. That's what we're doing. That's why he says, why do you test God? God has cleansed them. Why are you trying to clean them up? I like what Chuck Smith used to say. Started the Jesus movement back in the early, late 60s, early 70s. He said, God has called us to be fishers of, of men. We catch the fish and God cleans them. And there's too many people out trying to clean the fish. When it's jo- God's job to clean and to sanctify his own fish. All right. Amen. Amen. So we are testing God by putting this yoke on them. When God has already cleaned them up, you're basically saying God's work is insufficient. So in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas further reinforce the work of purification by the Spirit of grace again among the Gentiles by testifying to the mighty works of God. So in verse 12 we read, then all the multitude kept silent and listened. Amen. That's a great lesson for the church. (laughs) And listen to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Again, through them among the Gentiles. Now we come to the last attribute of the Spirit of grace. The Spirit of grace confirms. Verses 13 to 18. Verse 13, the Bible says, And and after they had become silent, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. He's talking about the Cornelius and his household that were saved. And with this, the words, the words of the prophets, prophets plural, agree. And then he quotes one of the prophets, Amos, verse 16. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David. He's talking about, Amos is prophesying about the millennial reign of Jesus, how he will come back and restore the temple. 
The millennial reign speaks of a thousand-year reign of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the earth when he returns. And he says, restore the, rebuild rather the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. And that again, apart salvation for the Gentiles apart from the law. And then in verse 18, he says, no to God, known rather to God from eternity are all his works. The word of God, spirit of grace confirms us through the word of God. To prove that the Gentiles could be saved apart from the law, James directs them back to the counsel of God's word. And Amos, along with other prophets, confirmed the fact that Gentiles will be saved, and that, again, apart from the law. So James is confirming the works by the word. A great lesson for us in the church. Let the, the works be confirmed by the word of God. You know, there's a lot of this goofy stuff you see sometimes in the church wouldn't be happening if people would go, well, where's that in the Bible? <laughs> a lot of times, you know, if they can't find it, then, you know, I wouldn't, I'd stay away from it. God confirms the work by his word. In verse 18, he says, in known to God from, from eternity. And basically, he's saying there that God has confirmed the salvation of the Gentiles before time even began. And then so he's, he's intimating here, should we argue and disagree with God? That's what verse 18 is basically saying. The spirit of grace confirms us in the Lord. The spirit of grace has confirmed you in the Lord. You are confirmed by the spirit of grace, what God has said in his word, what God has said through the work that he's performed in your life. You belong to him. You've been given the right through faith in Jesus Christ to be called children of God. Gospel of John chapter one. We've been given the right to be called children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. People desperately want to be confirmed in our culture today. But the confirmation we need is that from God? I was talking to one of our youth guys, call them youth guys, head of our youth ministry, uh, AJ, AJ, cool cat. And uh, it's, it's good for us old guys to talk to young guys, amen, because we're so out of touch sometimes. You know, I want to send out flyers to advertise stuff. Nobody's sent out flyers for the last 30 years, amen. <laughs> Let's get some flyers out. <laughs> uh, Pastor Al, uh, <clears throat> They don't do that anymore. It's Facebook, you know, whatever. <laughs> so it's good for me to talk to these young guys. But he, he enlightened me. He was just, you know, it was a great conversation. He was just sharing with me. He said, you know, in our culture among kids today, he said, you know, people are more concerned about being confirmed through their likes. So if you put something on, uh, on Facebook or whatever, you know, if you get uh, only two or three likes, you know, you soon take it down. But the more likes you have, the more you feel confirmed by people. But this is what he said, this young man. He said, but a lot of people that are trying to get confirmed may have 300 or 400 likes, but they have no love. Right. People like you. Amen. Amen. Right. People, oh, I got 500 likes, but who loves you? It's not about who likes you, but they're looking for affirmation. They're looking for confirmation, affirmation 
from their likes, people. And he told me, he said, a lot of these young people, you know, and of course, you know, if you've been reading the news or listening to the news, you know, the suicide rate among our teens is up 25%. Suicide among other people. People have been locked into their homes by these politicians. Don't go out of your house. Stay locked down. And they lock them inside their homes with their own hopelessness. And so drug abuse and alcohol and domestic violence is skyrocketing yes, yes in our culture. Because people are living with their hopelessness. He said, you know, a lot of these teens and they're committing suicide because they, they value themselves or find their self-worth in the Instagram post. And you see these Instagram posts and everybody's having a good time because they're posing. And everybody looks like they're having fun, but me, my life is miserable. So they kill themselves because they don't think their life is worth living because of Instagram. See how shallow the world has become. But the affirmation, the confirmation that we need must come from God. Amen? Life begins with faith in Jesus Christ. He is our healer. Young people, your life is not measured by your likes or your Instagram posts. But it's measured by the work of the cross. And he who knows the Son has life. He who does not know the Son does not have life. Christ came to give you life everlasting, not to condemn you, but to confirm you. The cross is our confirmation. According to grace, the spirit of grace for all would come to the Lord. In conclusion, the spirit of grace in relationship to the law is a spirit of joy, fruitfulness, purity, and confirmation. God has confirmed us by sending his son to die for us. And through faith in him, we have forgiveness and everlasting life. This week, I want to challenge you to, to not allow the grace of God to be of no effect. What do I mean by that? Well, if you, if you fall, know you can get up by his grace. If you're weak, you know you can be strong by his grace. Amen? If you feel, feel, feel condemned, you know you've been forgiven by his grace. Amen? And you get up and you keep moving forward by his grace. The spirit of grace. And how do we do that? Well, by drawing near. Keep drawing near to God. The Bible says if you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Hebrews chapter 10, and I will close. Verses 22 and 23 says this. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, cleansed in the name of Jesus. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised is faithful. By his grace, the spirit of grace, God has called us to live. Not by the spirit of fear or condemnation according to the law. Thanks for catching today's episode of Pastor Al Pittman's teaching on the CWCCS podcast. If you haven't already, hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if this message hit home for you, share it with a friend. You can also support this ministry and these free teachings by visiting cwccs.org and click on Give.
While you're there, you can also find the full archive of teachings from Al Pittman by clicking on the sermons link. That's cwccs.org. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is presented by Calvary Worship Center of Colorado Springs.